my aim with this series um, is by no means to unpack every detail. One, I don't think that's possible with the book of Revelation. And two, I don't believe an attempt to do so would be beneficial. Nor do I want this series to be seen as just some running commentary that we're working through the text and just saying, uh, explaining every little nuance that is there. No, my aim with this series is for us to see the big picture, to see the big picture that God wins and Christ reigns. And let the Lord, through his word, prepare us to walk faithfully in the days that lie ahead. Now, with that, we have a great deal to cover today. This will be our largest uh, section that we go through in our entire series of, of Revelation. I'm trying to keep the pattern of sevens together. Um, so last week, we looked at the seven seals. This week, we were looking at all seven trumpets um, together. So... We're going to read a section, explain, kind of look at some application, and continue forward throughout that pattern throughout our time together today. So if you would, Revelation chapter 8, picking up in verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God and from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, let's, let's pause there. We have these seven angels standing before God. Likely the, the same seven angels who delivered the letters to the seven churches, letters that Jesus, from Jesus imploring his church to remain faithful to the end, to, to patiently endure, and, and promising the, the one who remains faithful to the end, everything's going to be okay. Again, God wins. Christ reigns. And here's why those letters and that message are, are so important. Judgment is coming. And before the final judgment comes, we are experiencing birth pains, ever-increasing tribulations to prepare the way for that final judgment. Tribulations that I believe Scripture teaches that the church has been experiencing and will continue to experience um, until Christ returns, again, with ever-increasing intensity. So we can think of this much like the, the Israelites being present for and experiencing the plagues at the time of the Exodus. In fact, a great deal of what we're going to see today parallels what we see with the plagues um, in, in Exodus. Again, the, the more familiar we are with the Old Testament, the, the easier the book of Revelation actually becomes to understand when we see all the imagery begin to kind of unfold. It's, it's, not being, it's not anything new. It's coming from what is old. Just consider how what we're studying today compares to the destruction of the city of Jericho. A seemingly indestructible city, a, a city that would have been the city that most likely kept the Israelites from entering in to the, to the promised land to begin with, of, of much fear. This is the first city that they have to take in order to enter the promised land. What's the battle strategy that they're given? 
Think about that, God, how he instructs them to march around the walls of Jericho six times, for six days, that is. And on the seventh day, the, the seven priests with their seven trumpets are to march around the city seven times and then blow their, their trumpets with a long, loud blast. And upon that signal, the people are to shout as loud as they can and scream out. And, and as they do, what, what happens? The walls come tumbling down. A picture of both divine judgment against the wicked and grace, mercy, protection, and provision for God's people as he gives them the land that he has promised. Which is exactly what we see in our text today as the prayers of the saints are answered as these trumpets are sounded. Verse 6 telling us, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a, a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The, names of, the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of the their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Again, we pause and we, we see and understand that observation is essential to healthy interpretation. It's a good practice to have if you're studying the Bible. Uh, observe what you're seeing as we attempt to interpret. And there are cl clearly many things to observe here, are there not? But I am always looking for patterns. I'm looking for things that repeat. And so what is the repeated pattern that we see within these first four trumpets? It's a repetition of one-third. One-third of the earth being burned up. One-third of the sea became blood. One-third of the waters became bitter, wormwood, as that's what it means. One-third of the, the heavenlies were, were struck and and I find this significant, this pattern is significant. One, because it's a pattern. It means it's trying to communicate something to us important. But two, because the, the seven seals that we looked at last week, we saw it was one-fourth of the earth that was being affected. Now we move to these seven trumpets, and it's increasing to one-third, signifying an ever-intensifying period of, of tribulation upon the earth throughout the church age, leading up to the second coming of Christ. But now what I also find interesting is the form these judgments were in. As we've got hail and fire, we have blood, bitter water, and darkness, all reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues and things surrounding the Exodus. But now consider the context of the Egyptian plagues for a moment, especially as we look to interpret the text 
Moses coming before Pharaoh with each plague and calling him to do what? To repent. To let his people go. To let the people of Israel go. See, the plague itself was not what was important. What was important was the plague's intended result. Same thing here in Revelation. Think about the various responses that we see and personally have to life's trials. They vary, do they not? For some, pain and suffering have have a way of bringing us to our knees, but in the process of bringing us to our knees, they bring about a greater receptivity to God's will for our life. We listen better. C.S. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And many of us can likely relate well to these words, times of great trial, as painful as they may be, drawing us closer to the Lord, deepening our our prayer life and our time in his word, bringing forth evidence of increasing faith in the midst of the trial. But not so for everyone. For some, like Pharaoh, their heart does just the opposite. Life's trials serving to harden their heart to Christ and the gospel. They find it impossible to believe in a God that would permit such suffering, permit such evil. Maybe we know individuals that fall within this category. Some whom even may who have appeared to, to walk with the Lord for a season, even a long season, but when pressed with tribulations, whatever they may be, slowly begin to reveal where their true allegiances lie, and they're not with Christ. Thus life's trials being used by God to separate the wheat from the chaff. But now after these four trumpets, we see in verse 13, then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Meaning the tribulations coming from the first four trumpets are bad. Nobody wants to experience them, but we are experiencing them. But these next three, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth when these next three trumpets are blown. But unlike the the previous three, four judgments, These judgments appear to discriminate. And here's what I mean by that. While Christians and non-Christians are both present during these tribulations, we don't experience or respond to them in the same way. So let's pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, 
but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their, their hair like women's hair. Their, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is Apollon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, I don't know about you. But I can't think of a more horrifying sentence than people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Meaning the torment of these trials will grow so severe they will long to die, but at the same time fear death to such a degree they won't do anything about it. A life of fear. And my question is, what brings someone to such a point as this? And I think to answer that question, we need to back up a bit. And look with me at the star who's fallen to earth in verse 1. Who is this referring to? As we're told that this fallen star is given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. A pit where smoke rises and locusts with the power of scorpions come forth. Well, it's, it's imagery here, reminiscent of many things, but of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10, 18. You can jot that down in your notes. That passage describing Satan's judgment where he said, I, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You couple that with other biblical evidence that we could spend a long time looking at. And the names that were given there in verse 11, meaning destruction and destroyer. And it lends me and others to see this fallen star as the fallen angel, Satan. Jesus, who holds the keys to both death and Hades, as we've already seen in Revelation, then giving Satan, at least for a time, the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Which is another clear reminder that the, the spiritual warfare that is raging isn't being fought between two equal dueling forces at all. God is sovereign and Christ reigns. Satan is nothing more than a dog on a leash who is tethered to the throne of God. But church, we must be aware that even a tethered dog can do a lot of harm to those who come too close. He has been permitted to do so for a time. Consider the imagery that we have with, with this plague of locusts. Again, reminiscent of the plagues of, of Egypt. Plagues that continue to escalate in intensity. Why? 
And because Pharaoh's hardened heart remained hardened. Pharaoh, representative of people, uh, representing the people of, of Egypt as a whole in much the same way as, as any government leader is representative of the people he or she leads. And what did we have with the Egyptians as a people? Well, we had a people who were standing in direct opposition to the will of God. So blame Pharaoh all we want. It's easy to do, but the Egyptians were willfully worshiping the idols of this world, and they deserve the judgment that they received. And friends, we don't have to search far here for application, as there's no judgment that is too severe for a nation or a people who willfully and continually bow to the idols of this world. All the while, we continue to see in the midst of the judgment, we see salvation coming forth. We see the grace of God in the midst of judgment as, as he continues to give us every opportunity in the midst of these judgments to repent. Friends, that is the grace of God. But as the smoke rises and the locusts come forth stinging like scorpions, as they're given the, the power to torment people for five months, five months appearing to be to refer to a long but still limited amount of time. But here's where we have to be careful. Because our tendency is to want to interpret things like this through a modern lens, right? We want to think of how, how does this apply now or in the future? Which isn't a bad question. We want to see the application of this. But the only way we know how it applies now is to know how it applied then. As this passage can only mean what it's always meant. And the original readers would not have been interpreting this as Apache helicopters coming into battle as one popular author has suggested. No, how would they have understood this? Through their knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament. They would have been thinking with Exodus 10 and the plagues in mind. They would have been thinking with Joel 2 in, in mind. You can jot those down again for further study. Where Joel tells of a plague of locust-like army attacking Israel. A plague of chariots that come upon them. A plague that starts how? With the blowing of a trumpet. These locusts in Joel chapter 2, whether figurative or literal, being used to judge unrepentant Israel and bring what as they come? Famine and great suffering. But now look with me at verse 4. And again, we, we see the limiting power of these demonic creatures, not harming the grass or the plants or the trees like locusts would typically do, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Those who are not taking shelter under the blood of Christ are not sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Locusts not eating, again, any way the vegetation, but the people. Meaning this doesn't appear to be the same thing as the actual famines mentioned within the first three trumpets or four trumpets. This appears to be something far more destructive as it appears to be referring to a, a spiritual famine that is reminiscent of Pharaoh's hardened heart, the attacking of one's soul. Brought about how? 
through dark, smoke-filled deception. Meaning the, the literal famines that we experience in this world, the trials that we experience are, are judgments, yes. Now, those judgments may be for particular sin that we have committed. They may not. Maybe for a particular sin of, of a nation or nations. Maybe not. But either way, they're warnings. They're warnings of judgment to come and opportunities to repent. Tragedy strikes. Our response isn't or shouldn't be to question the fairness and the purpose of God, as we're so tempted to do. No, the purpose is, is not to think that there must be worse sinners and they deserve the judgment more than we do. No. No, towers fall. Earthquakes hit. Tsunamis strike. Pandemics rage. It's a reminder that if we don't repent, we too will perish. These moments serving to remind we who are sealed in Christ of, of how much God hates sin and how lavish his grace truly is. The Spirit continued to work in our life to, to keep us from despair. Assuring we who remain faithful in helping us see Christ as the treasure that he is. But for those who are not sealed in Christ, who don't have the promised Holy Spirit, what happens as the idols of this world are, are stripped away by such tribulations, by such locusts? Despair becomes overwhelming. As there's no protection from the demonic locusts who are eating away at your soul, slowly but surely eating away everything you love and you hold dear, you don't respond like Job. You respond with despair. You will seek death and you will not find it. Church, I believe this means that the closer we get to Christ's return, the brighter the light of the church will become. And I don't believe it will become brighter because our influence will become greater. But because the world around us will grow that much darker. The darkness pressing in harder and harder and harder against the light making the light even more distinct from the darkness and the despair of the world, which is going to bring about consequences, as we will see. Picking up in verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the, for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. 
For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So like Pharaoh, despite the ever-increasing intensity of the trials and tribulations, many of the unrepentant still refuse to repent. Four angels who are bound are, are then released, not permitted to do what they've wanted to do, desired to do, until the hour, the day, the month, and the year had come. Again, a picture of God's sovereignty. But upon their release, they're permitted to kill a third of mankind. Again, the intensifying nature of the tribulations from one-fourth to one-third. And the warfare depicted here, similar to what we'll see in chapter 16 with the seven bowls. But the consequences here are not nearly as severe as what we'll see then. When the judgment of God's wrath will then be complete. Which means what now? There's still time now to repent. There's still time now to believe, but time is running out. See, what I believe we have here is a symbolic picture of the ever-increasing spiritual torment being brought upon unbelievers throughout the church age. Which means if we get caught up in, in trying to find the, the modern-day or future literal meaning, we're going to miss the forest for the trees here. As the universal application for the original recipients and us pertains to spiritual deception and a hardening of one's heart towards God and everything that flows out of such a condition as that. I mean, how many among us? And I'm specifically referring to those who would claim to be followers of Christ when I say how many among us. How many are engulfed in a, in a cloud of deception that could very well lead to their demise? Leaving them believing they're, they're safe when they're really not as they continue to trust and cling to the idols of this world as their hope. And yet the deceptiveness of a question like that, because I realize a question like that in itself is deceptive, is that we're going to likely respond to such a question by pointing fingers at those who think differently than us. They're the deceived. We're the enlightened. So how then are we to know the truth? Strip it all away. Every single idol, familial, political, social, economic, Strip every idol away and answer this question. Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? Because here's the reality. Whether it's our individual idols or our national idols or our worldly idols, friends, they're all coming down. Every one of them. The only question is when. Just look back over history. History. 
The, the mighty Babylon crumbled and gone. Rome now stands as a city of ruins. Hitler, a vapor in the wind. The Soviet Union, no more. The list could go on, and more will be added to its number. But the point is, it's all coming down, which means now is the time to repent, not to cling to our idols even more as a means of our salvation from life's trials. Time to shine, not time to, to blend into the darkness. Here's why. is now we come to an interlude of sorts, an interlude consisting of two scenes, each scene focusing on the role of God's people in the midst of these trials, each showing us what faithfulness looks like in the midst of the tribulations we're experiencing now and will continue to experience into the future. It also shows us the cost. So picking up in chapter 10, verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call, to be sounded by the seventh seal, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That's what's taking place in scene one. There's a lot taking place in scene one. We've got an angel coming down from, from heaven. And when he calls out, with the, the seven thunders are sounded. But whatever the seven thunders sounded, we're obviously not meant to know, as John is told, don't write that down. A reminder that God has given us everything we need to know, and what he's given us is completely sufficient. We don't need to know more than what he has given us. But what we're also told when the seventh trumpet sounds is that the mystery of God will be fulfilled. 
The mystery of God spoken elsewhere in the New Testament as the Gentiles being grafted in as God's people. Jews and Gentiles comprising together to form the church, not by ethnicity, not by works, but through the faith in Christ alone. The work of God will be complete. But now notice what about the little scroll John has given. What does the scroll mean? Well, it appears that it's a reference to John being empowered. Despite his present circumstance, because remember, he's on the island of Patmos, exiled for preaching the gospel. He's empowered to prophesy and proclaim the gospel to many peoples and nations and languages and kings, as must we, no matter the cost. We must continue to take the gospel forward faithfully, no matter the cost. But what are we to make of John eating the scroll? I mean, because that's just weird, right? But it's also symbolic. Remember, this is a vision that he's having. And he's seeing himself, he's eating this scroll. But as he eats, what does he taste? Well, it's sweet like honey in his mouth, but it's bitter in his stomach. And we have to ask, okay, what does that mean? We'll consider the story of Jonah. Jonah bringing a message of judgment and repentance to the people of Nineveh. A bitter message to deliver and also a bitter message to receive. To be told that you will receive judgment if you don't repent, that's a bitter, hard message. But even more bitter for those who refuse to repent. But for those who do repent... So they hear the gospel, or they hear the message, and they, and they repent. Oh, the sweet taste of honey. The good news has come. Sinners under the, the judgment of God able to be declared righteous before him. Oh, church, it doesn't get any sweeter than that, which is the message of the gospel. A bitter message to unbelievers. Hard in so many ways to deliver and to hear, but oh, sweet honey to those who believe. Now, the second scene is similar, coinciding with the first, picking up in chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my wit- two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. For their Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after these three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on all those who saw them. When they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, even 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, some of this we're going to look at more closely in the coming weeks. But what we have here are two witnesses, two olive trees and two lampstands. An Old Testament reference to Zechariah chapter 4. But the miracles they perform are are reminiscent of of Moses and Elijah. And they serve as models for the church to imitate. But of course the question is, who are they? Like, Who are they exactly? Exactly, I'm, I'm not sure I can give a definitive, but I can give a pretty good idea of who I believe these are based upon the text. Especially when we consider Revelation as a, as a whole, They appear to be symbolic representatives of the church's witness in the world. So our our witness within the world, a a light on a table, a city upon a hill, lampstands to to shine bright in the midst of the darkness, the gospel that we proclaim. So a carryover from scene one. But now let's flush this picture out just a little bit further. The temple and the trampling of the holy city for 42 months are are mentioned here. It's thought by some to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in in AD 70. But I don't believe that to be the case, and here's why. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. This one is not. Notice how we're told it's the outside court that is trampled by the nations. For 42 months, for three and a half years... But then verse 1 seems to indicate that the inner part, the temple itself and the altar, they're protected. So what do we do with this? We, We see it symbolically for what it is. The protected temple representing the presence of God on earth. Which is most evidently seen how now? Through God's people. Through the church. We are the temple of God. Meaning the measuring we see should be understood as God caring for his church. We're we're sealed. We're protected. Which is important because we're told a time of intense persecution will come upon the church. 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days. And if seven is a number of completeness, meaning a complete period of suffering... Three and a half years would represent a long but limited and not yet complete period of suffering and persecution. Which means what as a a means of application for us? Well, there's multiple applications that we could look to here as it pertains to us. 
But first, remember, this letter was just as applicable to the original readers as it is to us, which means this is an indication to them that great persecution is coming upon the church. They should expect it then. We should expect it now. Thus, the letters to the churches that call them to remain faithful to the end. Same application applies to us as well. And by us, please don't just look at this as as applying simply through an American contextual understanding. I mean, do you think that the church in Afghanistan or the church in North Korea or South Sudan or other places around the world is wondering, hey, I really wonder when the persecution is going to increase. No. Such patterns of of intense persecution have been throughout church history and will continue. But as the second coming of Christ draws near, we should expect that the persecution against the church, again, will only increase, even violently so. doesn't mean we go looking for it. Being a martyr, pardon me parents, but being stupid are two different things. But as Christians... The brighter our light shines, the more the darkness will push in against us. It will push in even harder. It will not like our message. It will try to snuff it out. Now, of course, the question is, who is the beast in verse 7? And we're going to look more closely at him in a couple weeks. But the beast represents a, a demonized state power or government persecuting the church. The persecution of the beast serving as an attempt to to silence the church's gospel witness. Violence being a tool used, again, throughout church history. And it appears from the text, such violence, again, will, will continue to grow even more widespread in the days ahead. But the primary focus of this violence is to silence the gospel witness. And church, if that's the aim... If the aim is to silence the church's gospel witness, then why use violence when deception is working just fine? Deception being anything that will turn our attention away from the gospel and towards something else. And a simple observation of the American church is the more that we invest ourselves in political solutions to our problems, the more we blend in with the darkness. And intended or not, the beast becomes the God we worship. Now the great city, which includes all of the cities and nations of the world, is representative of cities determined to live life independently from God. It's a battle that rages and will continue to rage with greater and greater intensity until Christ returns. To the point where we see the two witnesses depicted here killed and silenced which looks like defeat, does it not? And that's the picture. The church imprisoned. This this persecution, these tribulations, increasing, 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 until the church is imprisoned, martyred, dead, silenced. Like the Taliban taking Afghanistan, it it looks like defeat. Anti-Christian leaders in control. Three and a half days, these witnesses lay dead in the streets. All looks lost. Those around mock and rejoice 
at the death of the church. But verse 11, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Oh, church, what a beautiful reminder of Christ lying in the tomb. Death appearing to have the victory until, until the stone is rolled away and the lamb who was slain stands victorious. A victory that we who are in Christ share with Christ as the dead in Christ will rise with him in the last days. A reminder that Satan's sword may slay us while on this earth, but death does not have the last word of our story if we are sealed in Christ and remain faithful to the end. As the final trumpet will sound, verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Church, this is the picture of the second coming with specific focus upon the final judgment and the reality that God wins and Christ reigns. God's temple in heaven is opened and the ark of the covenant, his covenant is seen. The most holy of places now open to the faithful. God's glory on full display. On display through glory in justice and on display through his glory and grace that is offered to everyone who believes. Which leaves us with, with a final question. How are we to proceed? Well, church, we are to trust and we are to obey. We are to keep our eyes focused upon Christ and continue to, to see him and embrace him alone for the treasure that he is. And remain faithful to his word, no matter the cost. Because our victory will not be found on this earth, but it will come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there's so much to take from this text today. So much that is applicable to how we're to live our lives now in light of these truths. We realize that the days ahead will only grow more difficult. 
But we also know these difficulties are not without purpose. And so we pray that you will help we who are in Christ to remain faithful to the end. We pray for those who are not presently trusting in Christ. We pray that the tribulations of these days will bring them to repentance. May they and we see you for the treasure that you are. May we continue to trust in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. Uh,